Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we continue through our Advent series. Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, verses 67 through 79. Now, if you had to think back over your life, over all the Christmases that you've had up to this point, more for some, less for others, um, how many Christmas presents can you remember? How many of the presents that you've received can you remember? There might be a few that stand out. Right? There may be a few that stand out, but most of the Christmas presents we've received, we've forgotten them. Right? Uh, they've either um, broken down and we've thrown them away. Uh, they're things that have just ended up in a garage sale here or there. They've worn out. We don't use them anymore. That's not to say we didn't appreciate those gifts when we received them. Of course we did. But most of the presents we've received over the decades haven't really changed much. Right? They haven't really changed our lives. They haven't really changed uh, who we are. They haven't really made a great impact on us. But this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 1, we see that God has given us gifts through Jesus Christ, gifts that do transform us, gifts that do impact us, gifts that do not wear out or corrupt or break down, gifts that completely redefine our reality and our future. And these gifts are more valuable than any price tag could capture. And yet God gives these gifts freely and he gives them generously. Now the question for us this morning is, do you see your need for these gifts? And if you've received God's gifts through Christ, do you still remember and rejoice in them? Is it still like that Christmas morning when you see that present for the first time? Let's read our text, starting in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. And his father, meaning John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our great God, we thank you for your Word, for the Scriptures that you have given to us, that we might hear them and read them uh, and proclaim them. For Lord, in your Word do we find the truths of eternal life. In your Word do we find true and lasting hope. In your Word do we find uh, the reality of who you are. Father, we thank you that your word is trustworthy, that it is without any error or mistake, Lord, that it is not man's invention, but your, your, your revelation to us. And Lord, we pray this morning as we hear your word that you would open our ears, open our eyes, that your Holy Spirit would um, bring the word to bear upon our own hearts. that the gifts we've received in Christ would become fresh to us once again, and that if there are those here who do not know Christ, that they might receive those gifts by faith this very morning. And so please, Holy Spirit, be at work as your word is preached. Help me uh, to proclaim your word in a way that's glorifying to you, O God, and helpful to your people. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I, I mentioned how the book of Luke starts with an angel named Gabriel appearing to an old man named Zechariah and, and telling him that he and his wife, uh, both of them are very, very old, uh, were going to have a child. 
Now, this would have been a miracle, and so Zechariah is very skeptical. He doesn't believe the angel. And as a result, God takes away his ability to speak until the child is born. As we come to verse 67 in our text this morning, the child has been born, and Zechariah once again is able to speak. The song that we're looking at today in verses 68 through 79, it really is a song, is one of the first things that Zechariah says. These are some of the first words that come out of his mouth as God looses his tongue. Now, I want to point your attention to something in verse 67. Notice there that um, Zechariah here is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's prophesying. That's very important to realize because the words that follow are not Zechariah's opinions. They're not Zechariah's creation. This is God effectively speaking through Zechariah in our text this morning. And so that gives these words a very particular weight. These are the very words of God. And as we look at Zechariah's song, we see three gifts that God gives to those who believe in Jesus Christ. The first gift is redemption through Christ in verses 68 through 71. The second gift God gives through Christ is a fulfilled covenant in verses 72 and 75. And the third gift we see in our text is mercy for sinners through Christ in verses 76 through 79. Now the first gift, redemption through Christ, uh, starts off this song here. Zechariah begins by blessing God. He's praising God and worshiping Him and honoring Him. Um, And really this whole entire song is a song of worship. It's a song that focuses on God and His works. but, But notice In verse 68, Zechariah doesn't worship just any deity, but he's very specific. He says, blessed be the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is no generic God. This is not like God bless America. This is a very specific reference. Zechariah is singing praise to the real God of real people in real history, the God whose plan and work and promises unfold through the pages of the Bible. He's very specific in who he's worshiping here. Uh, But why does he worship? Well, he's just become a father, so that's very exciting. Um, But that's not the main reason. It's actually uh, because of the realities that the birth of his own son, John the Baptist, represents. Uh, Zechariah declares that the true and living God, in verse 68, has visited his people. He's visited his people. Now, there's something we need to understand historically that puts a lot of significance in what Zechariah is saying here. Um, Zechariah is living, you know, about 0, 3 to 0, right, A.D., B.C., kind of that, right in between those time periods there. And before that, for the previous 400 years, was a time called the intertestamental period, right, a time between the writing of the Old and the writing of the New Testament. During this time, the people of of Israel, really the people of of Judea, were under Roman rule uh, and and various other uh, conquering kings. But during this time, God had been silent. He hadn't sent any prophets. He hadn't spoken to his people. His glory didn't fill the temple in Jerusalem. Um, To the people of Israel, it was almost like God's not here. Where is he? It was a time of silence. But that time has come to an end. Something is happening. And angels visited Zechariah and his his wife. And angels visited Mary. Uh, And and, and now there are these promises of a coming Savior. Miracles are happening. Zechariah rejoices that God hasn't forgotten his people. But he's visited his people. He's drawn near to them in the coming birth of Christ. These are all signs God is at work. He's doing something. And what is it? We see it in the next part of the verse. What God is doing is redeeming his people. He's redeeming his people. Now this word redemption in the Bible means to rescue or deliver somebody, um, just like God redeemed his people out of Egypt uh, with Moses. Now Zechariah declares here that God's providing an even greater redemption. Now in in your English Bible, these words are in the past tense, aren't they? Visited, right? redeemed. But in Greek, which is the language the New Testament was written in, they're not past tense. Um, Grammatically, and we're not going to get bogged down here in in the Greek or anything, but grammatically, 
they're describing an action that's as good as done without reference to time. It's just as good as done. In other words, even though this redemption is still in a way in the future with Christ's death and resurrection, it's as good as done. There is nothing that will stop God's purposes to visit and redeem his people through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as good as done. You can, you can rest that that will be accomplished. God is redeeming his people. And, and with this, Zechariah says in verse 69, God's raised up a horn of salvation for his people. Now, that's not an expression we use today. You probably have never used that expression in conversation before, right? Uh, and that's because it's an ancient Hebrew expression. And it describes a great and victorious strength. Uh, in Psalm 18, verse 2, David gives us a good idea of what this means when he says, God is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Right, we get this picture there uh, of this strong sort of, uh, you know, horn being raised up. And this horn of salvation here in verse 69 is a person. We could even paraphrase what Zechariah is saying here by saying, God has raised up a mighty Savior. It means the same thing. And this reveals something very important for you and I. It reveals we need saving. We need redemption. Otherwise, why would God raise up a Savior? And what do we need saving from? That's an important question. The answer of the Bible from cover to cover is that human beings, you and me, need salvation and redemption from our own sin against God and others. We need redemption and salvation from Satan's power. We need redemption from death. Zechariah says that God has provided that salvation. That Savior is Jesus. Friends, you and I can't forgive our own sin against God. We can't do that. We can't free ourselves from Satan's power. We can't escape death. Right? God sends a Redeemer to accomplish those things for His people. Zechariah goes on to say that this Savior, this Redeemer, is raised up in the house of David. That this, this Savior would be someone from the line of King David, one of his descendants. Now we saw last week how the angel Gabriel, in speaking to Mary, said that God would give Jesus the throne of his father, David. A thousand years before this, God had made a promise to King David uh, that David would have a descendant who would be a perfect and mighty king whose kingdom would never end and who would reign over God's people. And here, Zechariah says that's being fulfilled. That king has come. The royal savior from David's family tree is here. There's no more waiting. There's no more waiting. He's being raised up even now, Zechariah says. The king of kings is coming and he's bringing his kingdom with him. That's a good reason for Zechariah to rejoice here, isn't it? And we see in verse 70, this was not a, a, a new promise. This was not an unexpected development. But God had promised this Savior through the prophets. And when you read the Old Testament, we uh, read some this morning. When you read the Old Testament, you see prophets who speak forth God's words. And you see them making promises from God about a Savior who would come. And, and I mean, these are hundreds of years before Christ's birth that these prophets are speaking. The fact that God could make these promises so far in advance and keep them to a T reveals that God not only knows history, He not only knows the future, He designed it. He's in control of it. He directs it and He will accomplish His plan. Now listen to some of the things that God said through the prophets that came to pass through the birth of Christ. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is fulfilled as the Virgin Mary gives birth to Jesus Christ, who is literally God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah prophesies, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We see that promise again of a royal king, a royal savior. The prophet Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And where was Christ born? Of course, in Bethlehem, just as it was told. Now, these are, these are beloved Christmas verses for a reason. We see them fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Uh, God gives us great hope through these promises. And he sends Jesus to be this promised Redeemer, this King, this Savior. And what kind of salvation would Jesus bring to his people? Well, part of it, verse 71, is that we would be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. And to the Jewish people living at the time who are hearing Zechariah prophesy, they're, they're probably thinking, okay, this child is going to kick out the Romans that have been putting their, their foot down on us. Right? Those are our number one enemies. That's probably what they were thinking. But that's not ultimately what Zechariah is referring to here. That's not ultimately why God sent Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't born to save us from political enemies. And he wasn't born to save us from our personal enemies. Through Jesus, God actually saves us from a far more dangerous enemy. From Satan and the power of darkness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Well, Satan's main goal is to keep people from knowing the true God through faith in Jesus Christ. Satan's main goal is to keep people focused on anything but the Savior that God has sent. And Satan's even content if you just believe in a general sort of God. Right? That's, that's fine. Believing God exists will not save you. It will not forgive your sins. It will not bring you to heaven. Satan's okay with that. The Bible states very clearly that apart from faith in Christ Jesus, um, people are actually citizens of Satan's kingdom. Uh, you may not be conscious of that. Right? Most people aren't, aren't uh, explicit uh, Satanists, right? But the Bible says that ultimately it is true. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 says that through Jesus, God delivers us from the domain of darkness. In other words, that's where we were. That's where people still are. He delivers us from that. That's ransom language, redeem language, and, and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the ultimate uh, being saved from our enemy, from uh, being brought out the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, being delivered from Satan's grip and placed safely into the hands of Christ Jesus. And if you haven't trusted Christ, you need that redemption. You need that rescue from Satan's kingdom. That's the first gift we see here in our text. Redemption. Rescue. Jesus comes to rescue his people from Satan's kingdom. To bring them into his own kingdom. And how sweet that rescue is. Think, think about it for a minute. What kind of a king is Satan? He hates his subjects. He loves to see them suffer. He is cruel. He is Evil. He is the antithesis of all that is good. But Jesus is a perfect king. He is righteous. He is kind. He is just. He's compassionate. And in his kingdom, there is eternal life. There is forgiveness of sins. There is hope in the midst of suffering. That's a life-changing gift, isn't it? Imagine that you lived in a war-torn third world country. That's all you've ever known. Day to day, it's a question of if you're going to have enough food or water and you're always worried about people maybe killing you or killing your family. Imagine that's the world you grow up in, but it's all you know. It's all you know. And somebody rescues you out of that and adopts you and makes you a prince in a palace. And you're treated like royalty. That would change your life, wouldn't it? That would change your life. You would never forget that rescue, would you? 
Never. But so many people today don't even realize that they're subjects of Satan's kingdom. They don't realize their need for a redeemer to rescue them. And the question that we have to ask is, is do you? Do you see that need? Do you realize you need someone to bring you into the kingdom of Jesus and that Jesus is the one to do that? And if you've been brought into Jesus' kingdom, how often do you think about that rescue? How often do you think about what he has done in redeeming you? And this, this gift, this redemption is incredible in and of itself. That would be enough. That's more than we could ever ask for on a Christmas morning. But it's not the only gift God gives us through Jesus. He is more generous still. And the second gift we see is a fulfilled covenant through Christ in verses 72 and 75. A fulfilled covenant. Now there's a little bit of a shift as we come to verse 72. Um, and Zechariah begins to describe how God is fulfilling his covenant. That's kind of the theme of this section here. Zechariah says that by sending Jesus the Redeemer, God is showing the mercy he promised throughout the Old Testament. The mercy he promised to our fathers, Zechariah says. Now, now what is mercy? We're familiar with the words, but, but what is it? What is mercy? I think the simplest way to define it is, is sparing someone what they deserve. Sparing somebody what they deserve. Now, God promised mercy again and again and again through the Old Testament. He displayed mercy again and again and again through the Old Testament. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, he shows mercy by promising to send a Redeemer. He shows mercy by clothing them the skin of animals, a covering for them. He shows mercy by not obliterating them on the spot, right? And we look at the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. They sin against God over and over. They turn away from Him again and again, and they worship false gods. They break God's law, and God spares them over and over and over. He shows them mercy. He even gives them a sacrificial system that allows them to dwell in His presence. But, but all of these things were not the ultimate mercy that God promised to His people. They pointed forward to it. They were hints. They were foreshadows. But the ultimate mercy that God would display would come through Christ. You see, you and I deserve justice and punishment for our sin against God. And God takes the breaking of His commandments very, very seriously. But instead of requiring the punishment of justice from us, God shows mercy by providing a Savior, Jesus, who volunteers to stand in our place and bear that punishment for us. So that our sins would be justly dealt with, but that we would be spared. That's mercy. You and I need that mercy. Because God is faithful and merciful, He remembers His holy covenant, as we see in the second part of verse 72. Again, we ask, what's a covenant? What's a covenant? We see that word in the Bible, we talk about it in theology discussions, but what is a covenant? I think a, a simple definition is, is probably best here, and one commentator gives us a good one. Formal arrangement between two or more parties. A formal arrangement between two or more parties. Now, we can add a little more onto that, but it's a good starting place. Right? You have two parties or more, and they are coming to an agreement and an arrangement about X, Y, Z. But this is different than a contract. Right? It's different than a contract. A covenant is inherently relational. Now you have a contract with your internet provider. You pay them money. They give you a service, right? They give you internet. Um, but that's it. There's no relationship there, right? You don't actually know your, your charter salesperson probably, right? You don't think about them or call them to see how they're doing. You just pay your bill and they give you your internet. But a covenant's very different. A covenant is a formal arrangement where there are two or more parties saying, I will do this or I will do that. But the basis is their relationship to one another. Covenant, in a way, creates relationship. Now, marriage, for example, should be considered a covenant, not a contract. We take vows at our weddings. Right? We agree to do certain things. It's a formal arrangement. Um, but ultimately, it is that covenant creating the relationship of marriage. 
Now, God made a covenant long ago with a man called Abraham, verse 73. <coughs> God made a, a promise-bound arrangement and then even added an oath on it, right? That's, that's a double guarantee. You don't get more secure than that. A covenant plus an oath, it's as good as it gets. And what was the basis of this covenant? Well, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment and see uh, what God says to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. This is the first time here in Genesis 12 that God approaches Abraham. And while he doesn't necessarily make the covenant here, he reveals uh, the main goal of the covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's really the heart of it, right there. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's main end goal for his covenant with Abraham is to bless all the nations of the earth, something we later see fulfilled through Christ, who's the descendant of Abraham, bringing salvation for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A salvation that's not just for the ethnic descendants of Abraham, but for all who have Abraham's faith. When we turn back to Luke chapter 1, and, and you can actually keep your finger there in, in Genesis 12, when we turn back to Luke chapter 1, and we look at verse 74, though, we see something interesting. Zechariah says that this, this covenant, this oath, was to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, meaning God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. But when we read through the chapters, Genesis 12 through 17, of God's dealing with Abraham, we, we don't find anything that explicit. We don't find anything that explicit. So what is it Zechariah is referring to? Why would he see that as part of Abraham's covenant being fulfilled? Um, well, I think if we go back to Genesis chapter 17, uh, we can find the answer. Genesis chapter 17, just a couple pages over. God is continuing his covenant with Abraham here. And in verse 7, uh, he says something very important to Abraham. He really gets at um, an aspect of this covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, as part of his covenant with Abraham, God covenants to be the God of Abraham to be the God of Abraham's offspring. And he covenants to make them his people. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. That's an incredibly gracious and merciful thing for God to do. Why? Well, we need to understand that people are naturally sinful. By nature, we do that which rebels against God and offends him. It's not that everybody's as bad as they could be. But nobody is without sin. And God, by comparison, is perfectly holy. That's his nature, is holiness. He is inherently perfect and pure. We're on the opposite ends of the spectrum from God. His holiness, in a way, is, is repulsive to us in our own natural state. We can't even approach God on our own because he's so holy and we are so unholy. And yet here, God says, I will take you to be my people. I will take you for my own and I will be your God. He's not saying, I don't want anything to do with your offspring, Abraham. He says, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys down there. No, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a relationship, isn't it? That is a covenant relationship. And that's why Zechariah, back in chapter 1 of Luke, says that God grants us, in this fulfilled 
covenant that we can serve God without fear. It's not the fear of enemies. It's the fear of a holy God. The people of Israel, when they heard God on Mount Sinai speaking, His holiness was so terrifying to them, they said, we don't want to hear anymore. We can't handle it. Tell Moses to bring us the words of God instead. And they're just hearing the voice of God. This is a terrifying thing. And yet here, through this covenant being fulfilled, through Christ's work, that terror of a holy God disappears. And because of God's promise to Abraham to be our God forever, we don't have to fear that our sin will remove us from God or that it will bring his judgment upon us anymore. Because Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, comes to earth being born as a human baby, fully God, fully human, living a perfect life, obeying all of God's commands, doing that which we cannot do. And then he turns around and and willingly goes to the cross for our sin. And he says, Father, I will bear that. I will take that punishment for them. And by doing that, he removes the obstacle that keeps you and I separated from a holy God. When you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Not just some of them. Not just the past ones, but past, present, and the ones you haven't even thought about yet. God forgives them all. And your relationship with him is restored. Indeed, he becomes your God, your father, and you become one of his people. And and so if you've believed in Christ, he takes you as his. You do not need to be terrified of his wrath. If you are a Christian, you now can serve him with joy in his holiness, not fear of his holiness. That's a completely different relationship. And this this fulfillment of this covenant that Jesus um, really brings into its full fulfillment, it it brings about the gift of a reconciled and restored relationship with God that only faith in Christ can produce. This covenant doesn't only bring a restored relationship, it, it actually produces a change in us. In verse 75, God's people who who serve him without fear also do so in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days, Zechariah says. Now, holiness is a state of of being set apart, but also pure in God's eyes. We're talking about something much deeper than, you know, I don't play cards on Sunday afternoons or something, right? Something much deeper than than what we often associate with superficial holiness. This This is something about who we are goes beyond what we do. It's being set apart but pure in God's eyes. And righteousness is being blameless and guiltless before God, doing what is right. Now naturally, are we either of these things? No. Naturally, we don't even keep the first commandment. I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no others besides me. Well, if you love something more than God, guess what? Functionally, that's a God that you are putting above him. We don't even get that right. But here, the way God's people serve him is in holiness and in righteousness. You see, God works in his people. He works in you and in me to make us holy and righteous, to change our hearts, to change our desires. And and yes, we still sin. But hopefully, by God's grace, we sin less as we grow in holiness and in righteousness. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's exactly what we see described here. Jesus gave himself for us not just that we would be forgiven but that we would be changed. You don't get sanctification without justification, but you don't get justification without sanctification. Now, this covenant, we read, was with Abraham. And, of course, we read that it's with his descendants, too. And, and this raises a question. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Um, some people think, well, that's, that's only the Jewish people, right, who are genetically descended from Abraham, that these promises are only for them. And if that's true... Um, then I have bad news for most of you in this room. You're 
you're not getting this gift, right? Um, but, but fortunately, the Bible answers the question of who Abraham's descendants are very differently. Galatians 3.7 says that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It doesn't matter who you're descended from. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter your ancestry. It doesn't matter anything about you. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you share Abraham's faith. And if you share Abraham's faith, then you are Abraham's descendant. Then this covenant fulfillment includes you. Then this gift is for you. Then you get to serve God, who has called you to be his people in holiness and righteousness all the days of your life. That gift is for you. For people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Consider that reality, friends, that God has called people from every corner of the earth, every background, every ancestry, and purchased them with the blood of his son to belong to him. What a wonderful reversal of the Tower of Babel, isn't it, where people are scattered all over. And yet in Christ, God brings them back together. And in Abraham's covenant, indeed, all the nations of the earth are blessed through Christ Jesus provides access to God for us that we might worship him and serve him. As Jesus says in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the access point. And that's the second gift, a covenant fulfilled not just for Jewish people, but for anyone who has faith in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to the third gift we see in Zechariah's song, mercy for sinners through Christ. Mercy for sinners through Christ. Now the focus shifts again here in verse 76 as Zechariah speaks to his newborn son. Um, this child would be John the Baptist. Um, and Zechariah says here that this child will be called the prophet of the Most High. A prophet who would speak God's message to his people, who would go and say, The Lord is coming. But as great as John was, his work and his message wasn't about himself. It was about another. It was about Jesus. And when we look at verse 77, we see that John is to go and give knowledge of salvation to the people. That salvation wasn't in John, but in the one who is coming. As an adult, John would proclaim Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he beheld Christ Jesus. He, from the beginning of his prophetic ministry, pointed people to Christ and the forgiveness of sins, verse 77, that is in him. That was the heart of John's message. And in that way, John still speaks today. Because you and I, friends, need our sins forgiven. Uh, man's ultimate need in the 21st century has not changed from man's ultimate need in the 1st century. Our ultimate need is the forgiveness of our sins, and only God can do this. Uh, you know, people come up with all kinds of ideas and, and, and plans on, well, if I do this and this and this and this, if I say this 10 times, or if I go here, or if I do these things, then God has to forgive my sins. If I do enough good deeds, then God has to just ignore all the, the, the sins I've committed in my life. Well, that, that's just a way of saying, I'll get God to forgive my sins, right? I can just, you know, twist his ear a little bit and manipulate him to forgive me. But the reality is, only God can forgive sins, and God is bound to nobody's terms but his. God doesn't have to pay attention to any little efforts we have to try to earn our way to heaven. God has made clear what is necessary. Right? We can't remove the guilt from our sin off our own shoulders. We can't soften the offense we've caused against God. We can't make our sins disappear. Only God can forgive us since we've broken his law. But God has provided a way for those sins to be forgiven. He doesn't leave us guessing we don't need to come up with our own ideas that will be fruitless. He says, here is my son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come for you and your salvation. He'll die for your sins, rise on the third day in triumph and victory for your eternal life. Believe in Him, turn away from your sins, and you will be saved. That's God's plan. That's how you can be forgiven. Right there. That's it. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't need to go say a bunch of things or go here or do this. God has placed Christ Jesus before all people as the Savior in whom they must believe. And if, if you believe in Jesus Christ, as many of you do, then you can have and you should have assurance and peace that God has fully forgiven you, that he's not holding a grudge against you, that he's not grumbling to himself, oh yeah, I remember that one time. Okay, I forget everything else, but man, that one thing, really hard to let go. God is not like that. It's all or nothing with God. And if you are in Christ Jesus, then all has been forgiven. Every single thing. But if you have not believed in Christ, then your sins are unforgiven up to this point. But they don't have to stay that way. If you don't know Christ Jesus, let me encourage you and plead with you. Believe in Him today. Put your own efforts to be right with God aside and believe in the one that God has sent for you. And He will Forgive your sins. He promises to do so. And you may say, well, I don't think God really likes sinners, though. I mean, why should I believe that? I hear all this stuff about how God is holy and righteous, and I don't think he'd want anything to do with me. Maybe some of you are thinking that this morning, but uh, let me persuade you otherwise. Look at verse 78. Look how God's heart towards sinners and sufferers is described. Because of the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of our God. God's heart is not a cold heart. God's heart is not an uncaring heart. God's heart is not a business-like heart. His heart is one of warm, tender, genuine, compassionate mercy towards you. Surely you felt at one time or another that, that feeling deeper than your gut of compassion towards somebody or of kind love towards somebody. Maybe it's when your, your child says something so sweet and you just burst with love for them and mercy for them and compassion for them. Or, or when you see someone you love who has just made a complete mess of your life and your heart just breaks for them. Now, God's not a human being, okay? But he uses these pictures in Scripture to communicate to us the nature of his heart. You felt that feeling? It is infinitely more so in God. He is infinitely more tender in his mercies than those little inklings we might feel. That is God's heart towards sinful people like you and like me. It is a heart of tender mercy. And he has given a merciful gift. He's provided a redeemer. That's the whole reason Zechariah is rejoicing here is because Jesus, the mediator of God's mercy, has come. And the mercy of the Lord, I love this picture here. It, it, it beams forth from heaven like a sunrise. We see in verse 78. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. God doesn't keep the doors of heaven closed. He doesn't keep mercy locked up in heaven's treasure rooms. No, he pours it out on sinful people like you and like me. And this sunrise of mercy brings light to those who, verse 79, sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, who does that refer to? That, that refers to people. That refers to people. Those who sit in darkness are those who are spiritually blind. Who are ignorant of their own need for a redeemer. Who are ignorant of their own sinful condition. But God does not leave them ignorant. Instead, he sends forth his son to save them. You've had your eyes open. If you're a Christian, you've had your eyes open to your own sin. You've had your eyes open to your need for a savior. And yet you may have gone through much of your life without having any thought about either of those things. And yet God sends, as, a, as, as it were, a beam of heaven as the Spirit opens your eyes to your need. And He sends forth His, His mercy like a sunrise to those who sit in the, uh, the, who sit in, um, the shadow of death. Excuse me. 
These are those who, because of their sin, are headed for eternal death in hell. Now, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin are death. That's what we earn through our sin. That's what we deserve. That's the paycheck we get for our sinful labors. But that verse, Romans 6.23, goes on. It doesn't stop there. It says, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's his merciful gift. That's his merciful gift. Eternal life, the forgiveness of sins for sinners. God's not obligated to do that, but he does so freely because his heart is one of tender mercy. And the shadow of death here is not just sin, but even the suffering that we deal with in life, even when we are sinned against. God shows us mercy in those moments too. Isaiah chapter 25 describes how Jesus will rescue his people from death and sorrow and suffering. It says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Some of you, even over this past year, but over your, your life so far have shed many tears and you've suffered greatly. And we know however much time the Lord gives us here on this earth, there probably will be more tears that we shed. But that is not forever. And God gives us a promise that he will ultimately wipe away the tears from our faces and in the time that we are alive here, in this short, short time, with our tears and our weeping and our suffering, that is like an atom compared to the ocean of eternity we will have without those tears, without those sorrows, without those sufferings in the presence of our God. And so God mercifully makes us that promise to deliver us from the shadow of death, from the darkness. And when the light shines, the darkness Please, when the sun rises, the dark of night disappears. I woke up early this morning and it was an incredible sunrise for the two or three of you that were awake that early. <laughs> but such a glorious picture of how the dark cannot remain in the presence of light. It simply cannot. And Jesus himself says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. The mercy of God is manifested more clearly in the person of Jesus Christ than anywhere else. And Jesus who comes to bring us out of that darkness, out of the shadow of death, into eternal life in relationship with God. And that's what we see at the very end of verse 79, isn't it? To guide our feet into the way of peace. Christ comes to guide our feet into the way of peace. He, he comes to guide our feet into peace with God, a path we had not known before. Christ says, come, walk this way. Have peace with God. And Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since we've been declared righteous by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when somebody offends another person, if, if somebody smashed into my car in the parking lot out there, whose responsibility is it to make things right? It's theirs, right? I'm the one who receives what they've done, and I get to decide if it's enough. Well, so it is with God. When we sin against God, he's the one that gets to decide what happens. He could demand justice, but instead he's given us mercy. And he says, no, through my son, I will make peace with you. I will reconcile you to myself. That hostility that you, sinful person, have caused, I will do away with for the sake of my son. So Jesus brings us into peace with God. And he also guides our feet into peace with each other, another path that we do not naturally know. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says that as we've been loved with God, uh, loved by God, we should therefore love others. Here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That love that we received becomes the basis for all of our own efforts to pursue peace with others. 
doesn't it? It all goes back to what Christ has done for us. It transforms our relationship with him and with others. This is the third gift we receive here as we see in Zechariah's song. God's mercy for sinners through Christ. And God gives us far more gifts than just the three we see in this text. But even these three are incredible. Even these three gifts are more than we could ever ask for. Friend, have you received these gifts? Have you received these gifts? God offers them to you. Don't reject His gift. Don't reject His Son. He offers you mercy, compassion, redemption, and blessing if you will believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Those gifts are as good as yours. You have faith in His Son. And if you have received those gifts, well, don't let them be like those Christmas presents of days gone by. Don't let them be like those gifts that are too soon forgotten. Treasure the redemption that God has given you. Treasure your blessings in Christ. Treasure God's mercy to you. Go back and reflect on these gifts. Put them in, in, in the front shelf of your mind. Look at them fondly. And consider how God has changed your life through Christ Jesus. And remind yourself daily of the abundant and invaluable gifts that God has given you in the birth of His Son. And, and like Zechariah, may we rejoice in that. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are generous the giver of good and gracious gifts. And Lord, we thank you so much for these three gifts we have received in Christ Jesus, for redemption from Satan's kingdom, for a fulfilled covenant through which we can serve you, through mercy for sinners that we've received in Christ. Lord, these are gifts far beyond what we deserve, and yet you will never take them away from us. You will never take them back, but you have given them to us for eternity. And Lord, we thank you so much. Would you help us to reflect on these things, Lord? Give us fresh joy in our salvation. That the blessings we are familiar with wouldn't be old, that they wouldn't be forgotten. Lord, but that we would see them anew and consider them again meditating on all that you've done for us. And Lord, may our hearts be lifted up in praise to you just like Zechariah's was. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.